Hello, and welcome to The Archive Project. I'm your co-host, Amanda Bullock. This week's episode features a conversation from the 2022 Portland Book Festival. This year's Portland Book Festival is on Saturday, November 4th, 2023. We're live and all in person in downtown Portland with over 100 authors, kids events, a book fair, food trucks, and more. Information at pdxbookfest.org. We hope to see you there. Welcome to The Archive Project. I'm Amanda Bullock from Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This week's episode features Reza Aslan discussing his new book, An American Martyr in Persia, The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville. Aslan was interviewed by Literary Arts Executive Director Andrew Proctor at the 2022 Portland Book Festival which took place on Saturday, November 5th, in downtown Portland. Persia, of course, is now known as Iran, and Iran has been in the news this fall for a new wave of protests in reaction to the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini, who was arrested by the morality police for not wearing her hijab properly and died while in police custody. The protests have been remarkably widespread, and the government response severe. Aslan asserts this current movement is a fourth Iranian revolution after 1979, 1953, and the 1906 constitutional revolution his book focuses on. In An American Martyr in Persia, Aslan describes the events of that 1906 revolution through the story of Howard Baskerville, the son of a preacher and a student of Woodrow Wilson, who found himself in Tabriz, Iran in 1907, working as a Presbyterian minister and teacher. What happened next is well-known to Iranians, but almost totally unknown to Americans. Aslan gives us a glimpse into this history in this fascinating conversation from the 2022 Portland Book Festival. Let's join interviewer Andrew Proctor. It's so fun to have you back. It was about three or four years ago you were here for Portland Arts and Lectures, so I'm just thrilled to see you again. It's great to be back. Um, I'm going to ask you to read just this first couple of pages from kind of the middle of the book, but it's kind of a great, uh, I thought, entry for everyone here into the book. And it's, everything about this book is not what you think. And that's what I loved about <laughs> it so much. So may okay. I, would you, would you All want right. to read? Sure, sure. And, and uh, say anything you would like to say so about So where that are thing. we here? So this is, so this is the true story of Howard Baskerville, who was a 22-year-old Christian missionary from Nebraska, who in 1907 went to Iran, which was then known as Persia, uh, and was assigned to a, a city called Tabriz in the northwest of the country, where he was to spend two years uh, teaching English and preaching the gospel. And he arrived in the middle of the Middle, the middle East's first democratic revolution. And spoiler alert, he uh, ended up fighting in that revolution and dying. It is, after all, called an American martyr in Persia. Uh, but this is uh, his first arrival when he first arrives in the city of Tabriz. Baskerville's first impression of Tabriz, as his carriage came rumbling down the Armenian mountains and onto the salt-whitened valley, could not have been reassuring. If he had anticipated a cityscape matching the Orientalist fantasies he'd seen emblazoned on those brightly painted posters advertising travel to the Middle East, onion domes and minarets sketched in gold, a white adventurer in a pith helmet standing in the foreground, admiring the view from a safe distance. He would have been sorely disappointed. There were no lofty towers in Tabriz, no Moresque monuments to fawn over, no glazed tiled palaces or grand mosques glimmering with multicolored facades. The Tabriz that Baskerville first laid eyes upon was a squat city, densely packed with flat-roofed homes made of clay and mud plaster and painted the same dull yellow-brown as the hills surrounding the city. There was a time when this was one of the greatest cities in the world, the crossroads between east and west, the seat of long-forgotten kingdoms. Alexander the Great knew the city by its ancient name, Taurus. The Mongols made Tabriz the administrative capital of of an empire that stretched nearly the length of Asia. When Marco Polo passed through in 1275, he described beautiful gardens and fabulous riches. 
Merchants of the faraway countries come to Tabriz purchasing goods and fulfilling huge deals of precious and dear stones, which are plenty in the city, he wrote in his travels. From what Baskerville could view in his carriage, Tabriz looked like an old clay vessel that had been repeatedly shattered and put back together again, the cracks and fissures no longer concealable. The city had, in fact, been shattered several times. The basin upon which Tabriz sits is prone to earthquakes. Throughout its, throughout its long history, it has been repeatedly razed and rebuilt. One earthquake in 1780 reduced all of Tabriz to rubble, killing practically the entire population, some 200,000 people. This city had also seen its share of invading armies, having constantly changed hands from the Russians to the Persians and back again during a century of war between the two empires over control of the Caucasus. Most of its architectural treasures, including the famed Blue Mosque built in 1465, were now just piles of colored rock. The only prominent surviving landmark was the citadel, a huge compound left behind by the Mongols containing a mosque, a library, a mausoleum, and a courtyard with an enormous reflecting pool, all of it encircled by a wall 100 feet high and 25 feet thick. The citadel could be seen from any point in town. For years, criminals condemned to execution were cast off its summit. To this day, Tabrizis repeat the story of the young woman who, condemned to death, was pushed off the citadel, only to have her skirt billow out beneath her like a parachute. She landed gently at the bottom. That was the last time the citadel was used for executions. Persians, as Baskerville would soon discover, are intensely superstitious people. Yet even this majestic monument was, by the time Baskerville saw it, a neglect neglected ruin. Its crumbling walls a metaphor for the city itself, broken, deprived, still standing. Whatever anxiety Baskerville may have felt upon seeing Tabriz from a distance would only have increased once his carriage passed through the city gates. Tabriz looked for all intents and purposes like a frontier town in the old wild west. Bands of armed gangs, their chests crisscrossed with ammunition, roamed across the city's main square. Everywhere he looked, there were elegantly dressed, mustachioed men wearing six-shooters and lounging atop horses or leaning against the sides of buildings. These men were bandits, brutes, and thieves, unschooled and unbreakable, defiant of all authority, loyal to none but their own. In America, they would be called cowboys. In Persia, they were known as lutis. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> So that's what I mean, like I did not see that coming at 77 pages. So it's interesting because Tabriz is not that far from Tehran, right? I mean, when you look at a map, they're, they're, you know, they're a, few, what, a few hours apart. Yeah, I think in, the, in those days, you were on a swift horse, you could make it in a day, Yeah, a little more than a day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it, it is this big, multi-ethnic, multi multicultural city, and it's a frontier town, like... All frontier towns? I mean, is that how you really think about Tabriz? Yeah, so it's a town at the, at the absolute northwestern border of Iran. Uh, and it has, at that time, the Russian Empire on one side and the Ottoman Empire on the other side. And so, you know, for centuries, it had been this uh, important stop in the old Silk Route. And so it, as a result, like any of these sort of trade destinations, these frontier towns, it had become a real cosmopolitan city. Almost every religion of Iran at the time was represented in Tabriz. There was obviously you know, Muslims, Christians, Jews, uh, but there were Zoroastrians and Baha'is and Buddhists who traced their lineage all the way back to um, the Mongol invasion. And so as a result, it had kind of garnered this reputation, first and foremost, as a fairly eclectic, cosmopolitan city, lots of ethnicities, lots of religions, um, but also because it was so distant from the center of uh, government in Tehran, this sort of lawless <laughs> no man's land, this kind of wild, wild west yeah. uh, that was more or less run by these sort of the Persian equivalent of cowboys, mm -hmm. the, this uh, very important uh, uh, cultural position called the Luti. And the Luti, because I, I mentioned it, I, I feel like I, I want to spend just a minute because it's such a fascinating character. The Luti was basically a gentleman bandit. 
Um, these were mostly illiterate, mostly sort of poor um, gangsters, essentially, but they prided themselves. In fact, what set the Luti apart was the impeccable way in which they dressed and their sort of perfectly quaffed mustaches. And these are, you know, people who couldn't read or write, but yet could like spout poetry, you know, uh, without any kind of hesitation. And their job was to be sort of the law in lawless times. They, they, they were the, the protectors of the widow and the orphan. And, and in Tabriz, they pretty much ran the city. It's a very romantic idea, yeah. right? And like, it sounds a bit like a Portland barista too with the mustache, but <laughs> it's, like it's probably not the same Portland thing. Portland barista but with like six shooters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And four master's degrees yeah. <laughs> in Portland. Um, so this is an amazing story because it's both, you know, like this incredible biography of, of a person who's never had a biography written about them before. It's about somebody who's incredibly famous in one place and almost unknown here, but yeah. it's also an incredible history of a region. And I just feel like I, it's just such an interesting story. It has a lot of different characters in it that are all kind of fascinating and incredible. But I, can we just go back, rewind now? And I, I want to talk, I would like you to talk about a little bit about Charlotte Perkins and like the oh, yes. early, the early sort of uh, arrivals, because they set the stage for what happens to Baskerville later. Um, could you talk about a bit? Yeah, of her? absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, by the time Baskerville arrived in Tabriz, the mission there had been around for about seventy years or so. So not that long, um, but it had been founded by this young married couple, Justin uh, Perkins and Charlotte Bass who were sort of the first children of the Second Great Awakening in America. For those of you who don't remember like your you know, college history class, this was this period in the middle of the 19th century that um, saw this uh, robust Protestant revival in America where bands of mostly young, mostly women, by the way, uh, began to sort of distance themselves from the churches, the sort of stilted formality of religion of their parents, and would go off into the woods um, where they would come together for days at a time, listening to these sweat-soaked preachers, uh, you know, yell at them to repent, and, and really kind of reformulating Protestant Christianity into this new uh, awakened revivalist idea of like the individual and God. And because travel was not easy in those times, they would bring tents with them and that's where we get the term tent revival from. This is the movement in America that gave birth to what we now refer to as evangelical Christianity. It arose out of this. And the very first thing that sort of these new, you know, filled with the spirit young Christians who came out of these experiences wanted to do was to spread this message, not just to their neighbors, but to the rest of the world. And so it launched this missionary movement, this kind of passionate movement to go out to the darkest corners of the world, places untouched by Christianity and to bring the message. And Persia was one of those right. <laughs> dark corners. And so uh, Justin Perkins and Charlotte Bass were a young married couple who became the very first Americans to be assigned to go uh, and be missionaries in Persia. And as you can imagine, this was a very difficult, you know, this is the end of the 19th century. Travel was no small matter by any means. I mean, you basically, like, when you would go on a trip like this, you would say goodbye to everyone because chances are you would not come back. Um, Charlotte Bass, they were the first Americans uh, to, to preach the gospel in Persia. Charlotte was the first American woman to go east of the Black Sea, period. Um, that's how sort of unknown this whole land was to, to most Americans. Um, and they were there. It was very fascinating because they had been told by the Presbyterian Church, you're going to go there to save souls, but not Muslim souls. You can't really preach this gospel to Muslims just yet. It's a little, it's a little dangerous to do that, but that's okay. Your job actually is to go there and preach this gospel to the Christians, because you see, the Middle East is full of Christians. 
Christian communities that date their churches all the way back to the apostles. Chalcedon Christians, Assyrian Christians, Armenian Christians, Nestorian Christians, these sort of ancient Christian communities. And the point that the Presbyterian church was making is that they weren't really doing it right. Right, that their Christianity isn't correct. Our brand new evangelical revivalist version of Christianity is the right Christianity. So you're going to go preach Christianity to other Christians. That's what you're going to do. And they did. And they, they created a thriving mission. They built schools and hospitals. And, and they really kind of became part of the community, but at this horrific cost. Uh, which is that um, six of their seven children died, uh, mm -hmm. many of them before they even reached the age of two, one with, who reached the age of 12, um, as a result of this ministry. But the end result of that was this thriving mission uh, that Baskerville, 70 years later, was able to take advantage of. Yeah, it's a, and and they were quite romanticized by by the evangelicals back in America. Is that well, true? Of course, yeah. I mean, yeah. they were they were martyrs for Christ. Right. I mean, they themselves survived. Although, as you can imagine, Charlotte uh, really, you know, had had a had a fairly severe mental breakdown um, yeah. uh, because of oh, you know, she lost six of her children, um, but they survived and they and they built this you know thriving mission. And yeah, that, that turned them into, I mean, people would, I write in the book, people talked about Charlotte and, and Justin the way people would talked about like, you know, Christians who'd been eaten by lions in the Colosseum. Right. Like that's how they talked about them. Yeah. Well, that's, so, the, so you've got a picture now to breathe and we've got a picture of these, this missionary movement. And this is sort of the collision that's about to happen because they enter into a political moment in Persia or, or right. Baskerville enters into the political moment that's like really intense. And you know, it's the Persian Constitutional Revolution, which, you know, I had never heard of, and I think it's not a, it's not a, not talked about a lot, not, you know, as far as I can see, and it, it's actually pretty critical to the rest of the history of the 20th century in 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 that part of the world and part of our world actually. But it's actually set off by tobacco, yeah. right? Is that so? Can you talk about the begin? So, but the Constitutional Revolution is going on when when Baskerville arrives, but it actually pre it begins a little right. bit before yeah, his arrival. It began before he arrived. Yeah, it. Technically started in about 1906, and it was the result of a lot of um, disaffection in the Iranian community about the state of the economy, the way in which the resources of the country were, were being sold off to the British and the Russians, um, and also just like a, a lack of any kind of um, ability to have a say in the decisions that run their lives. And so around 1905, 1906, a group of young, zealous Iranians poured out onto the streets, um, backed by business interests and by the clergy at the time, and demanded a constitution. They demanded a constitution that would lay out the rights and privileges of all the citizens in the country, and they demanded the creation of a parliament, an independent legislative body that would not only have the ability to pass laws, but far more importantly, would have the ability to curb the unchecked authority of the Shah, the, the monarch. Uh, Iran was an absolute autocratic uh, country at the time. And it took a long time, took about a year and a half of protests and strikes and bloodshed, but they succeeded. And in 1906, um, the Shah, a man by the name of Muzaffar ad-Din, um, signed the constitution, a very progressive document that laid out you know, the rights and privileges of, of all the citizens, male and female, and allowed for the creation of a parliament and they, there was a, a free election and suddenly Iran was a constitutional monarchy. This was the first democratic revolution in the entirety of the Middle East. But in one of those, you know, <laughs> historical moments, uh, not long after signing uh, the decree allowing for those things, the Shah died, and his son, this 35-year-old uh, prince by the name of Muhammad Ali, not that Muhammad Ali, <laughs> different Muhammad Ali, but now you'll remember his name, um, became the new Shah. And this guy, I mean, you know, we, we've, we Iranians, we've had some 
miserable SOBs sit on the throne <laughs> of, of Iran. This guy really took the cake. Um, he, you know, he's, he was raised to believe that the throne was his by right, that God had just given him Persia as his inheritance. And he was incensed with his father for having allowed for his, what he saw as his God-given authority to be curbed by, you know, these like pointy-headed intellectuals and these like illiterate peasants demanding their own rights. And so starting in 1907, he first in the background a little bit and then very much explicitly begins to fight back against the constitution. Um, and what began as a revolution quickly descends into a civil war. Uh, with one side being the royalists, these are the people who are uh, on the side of the Shah, and the other side calling themselves the nationalists, they were on the side of the constitution. But of course the Shah, you know, he had all the guns, and so uh, he had a, a Russian-trained, Russian-armed, uh, Russian-funded, and Russian-commanded military, which made short work of essentially regaining control over the whole of the country back to the crown. Every city, every province, except one, Tabriz. And Tabriz becomes sort of the last bastion of the revolutionaries. It's where they all just basically huddle behind the, the walls of Tabriz to sort of recalibrate this, this revolution and figure out how to fight back. And it's right at this moment that this 22-year-old missionary from Nebraska shows up uh, in the heart of the like the revolution in the city of Tabriz. And speaking of miserable SOBs, I mean, <laughs> the guy turned a cannon directly on Parliament yeah. and just blew it up. Like he he, he uh, it, the Parliament was in session. I should mention. Yeah, I, so he rolled he rolled cannons to the Parliament building while Parliament was in session and blew it up with the parliamentarians inside. That's how he basically announced uh, that he was no longer abiding <laughs> by the Constitution. <laughs> it's unbelievable. So, so in walks Baskerville, and he is uh, sort of Woodrow Wilson, you know, graduated from Princeton. Yeah. Woodrow Wilson was the president of Princeton at the time. He is, from the way I read it, was full of idealism, both about his religion and about democracy. And you yeah. already touched on some things about the idea that you know, God's given the Shah his authority, but there are other folks who, you know, Woodrow Wilson among them, who says, I think this is in the book, you know, democracy is the moral judgment of God, right? right? right. And so you can see this collision, you know, coming to the fore. Can you talk about, I think it'd be interesting to hear you talk about democracy and religion, both for the Persians at the time and for the Americans, and the way Baskerville would have experienced those yeah. early, that early time in there, because there's a lot of missed cues as well, I think. Yeah. So Baskerville is the son and grandson of Presbyterian preachers. He's expected to, you know, follow in, in their footsteps and become a preacher. He goes to Princeton, where his father and his grandfather went, and he studies Christian ministry, because that's what's expected of him. But Princeton had just recently gone through this kind of educational reform at the hands of its new uh, president, Woodrow Wilson at the time, um, in which part of the reforms were that all students now, regardless of what your major was, had to take two courses outside of your major. We now call those electives, so you can thank Woodrow Wilson for, for that. Um, so his junior year, he had to take these two electives. So after two years of like just burying his nose in the Bible, he decides he's going to take two courses with Wilson himself, who was not just the president, but by far the most popular professor there. And Woodrow Wilson, we now know, very complicated man. <laughs> yeah. On the one hand, he helped win World War I. He defeated fascism. He created the League of Nations, the forerunner to the United Nations. He was a globalist before we had a term for that, he essentially def, you know, created what we nowadays refer to as international law. Like he basically made that. Um, also, he was an unrepentant racist, like, a, like the most despicable kind. I mean, a guy who long after the Civil War was over was still taking the Confederate side. Uh, a guy who, when he was president of Princeton 
refused to follow the lead of the other Ivy League schools and allow black students. Uh, and when asked why, his answer was, because it would be embarrassing for them and for us. This is a guy who, when he became president of the United States, rid DC of its entire black labor force, just fired every black person. Um, this is a guy who once uh, screened Birth of a Nation at the White House. So, okay, you know, complicated guy. Mixed results. Yeah, mixed results. <laughs> but he had this idea about democracy, which sounds familiar to us nowadays, but back then was kind of really exciting and new that democracy wasn't, uh, you know, America's gift. It, it was God's gift, that, that God had created democracy, that popular sovereignty was the will of the divine, and that all peoples, all peoples everywhere, would one day be free. And, you know, if imagine like you're a 20-year-old uh, kid and you're listening to this. I mean, it's, it's, it's exciting. He, he, you know, I think Baskerville was, was really moved by the passion with which Wilson kind of fused religion and, and politics. And so when he graduates a year later, he decides rather than go back and become a country preacher, which was what is expected of him, he would have just a, a, a little adventure. Yeah. And he applied with the Presbyterian Board of Foreign Missions for a uh, short-term mission trip. And so when he arrives in Tabriz, he's there to preach the gospel. That's what he's there. He's going to teach English at the missionary school, and he's going to preach the gospel. Um, and by then, they had started preaching to Muslims. It had been 70 years, so they were, you know, it was, it was you know, to con what he referred to as the Mohammedan work. That's what he was there to do, the Mohammedan work. But he suddenly arrives <laughs> in the middle of like the exact thing that Wilson had been talking about for a year, right? I mean, it's like he's walking into a history book. There's a revolution taking place in his city by people who are demanding their most basic rights and freedom and who are willing to sacrifice themselves in a fight against this tyrant, this bloodthirsty tyrant uh, who wanted to take it away from him. So he immediately is drawn to it, but, but he's also told repeatedly by the school that has employed him, by the church that sent him there, and most importantly by the US government that controls his actions, that none of this is his business, that he can't have anything to do with the revolution. He's there to teach his courses. He's there to save souls, not lives. That's what he's there to do. And if he does anything different than that, then they'll immediately ship him out of the, the country. And it's the last thing that he wants is to leave this, this experience. So that's kind of what he does. For about a year and a half, he puts his head down, teaches his classes, preaches the gospel, tries to pretend that none of this is happening, but it he just can't. It draws him uh, to it in this kind of compelling way. Well, and, you know, it's important to say that, you know, the population of Tabriz and the school are not separate. Like, these are his students, right? And so it's the, it's, the, it's the death of some of his friends and students that bring him into the fray, I think. Yeah, he cannot... I mean, look, there were, there were five American families there. So, you know, not a huge American community, but there were a lot of Europeans and, and uh, you know, uh, that's it. Just Americans and Europeans, that was it, at the, at the school. And some Persians and, and Turks and some Middle Easterners. But the Americans especially understood that whatever happened to Tabriz, whatever happened in this conflict between the Shah and the revolutionaries, it wasn't going to affect them in any way, you know. If the Shah won, they would just continue doing what they were doing. If the revolutionaries won, they would just continue doing what they were doing. And so for a while, I think, you know, that idea that he was safe from the violence that was taking place on the streets, I think kind of buttressed his, his well, not his idea, but his decision to put his head down and do the work that was demanded of him. But... You're right. I mean, he is teaching children, teenagers, whose fathers are 
and, and mothers and brothers and sisters are being slaughtered just outside the gates of the school by you know, the Shah's army trying to invade uh, Tabriz and control Tabriz. And it just it, it starts to weigh on him. And I think making matters worse, um, he is given an extra class uh, his second year. And the class is a history class in the American Revolution. So, so this kid, this 23-year-old kid, is teaching these teenagers about revolution while after class, <laughs> they are going out to fight one. And I think the hypocrisy just becomes overwhelming for him. Right. And it's, you know, America sitting on the sidelines of this whole thing and just sort of being like, whatever. And then you've got Russia and Britain playing the sort of so-called the great game. And we can sort of talk yeah. about that a little bit, which is they're trying to manipulate outcomes exclusively for their benefit. Absolutely. There's no interest in, yeah. in, 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 in litigating any of this to anyone's benefit in Persia, as far as, as, far as I could tell. So, so Baskerville sort of ends up signed up with, I think, Satter Khan. Right, yes. Right? So you ha like, this is another one of these characters. That are, these the characters in this book, who are all real and amazing, yes. feel like I, they're gigantic people, and I will never forget them. So could you talk about yeah, Satter Khan, Satter Khan. And, and, and the yeah. army that he sort of forms, which is also this bizarre... So they're surrounded in the desert. Right. And they're stuck in this sort of western frontier town, and there's all these different nations present in that town, and there's this one guy, Sadr yes. Khan, who forms this, Yeah, I don't even know how to describe it. So basically what happens is, you know, the Shah's army shows up to Tabriz and assumes that this is gonna be as easy as taking all the other cities, but there's a difference in Tabriz, which is this legendary commander named Sattar Khan, who, it was, was even back then referred to as the George Washington of the Persian Revolution, which is a strange thing to say because George Washington was like a rich landed slave owner and Sattar Khan was an illiterate horse thief. Sattar <laughs> Khan was a looty. That's what he was. He was a looty. And, but he had this incredible charisma to him and he manages to rally the revolution and the entire city together. And he creates this essentially like a professional army that they call themselves the People's Army. And it's not an army, it's like cheesemongers and farmers and like the baker and women. I mean, women join this army, they, they cut off their hairs, they put on pants, they, put on, they grab their, their, their weapons and they go shoulder to shoulder fighting with the men, which causes a huge scandal in Europe when like these photos start getting published there of like women fighting in this war. And he turns Tabriz into this center of revolution that manages to keep the Shah's army at bay for months. Um, and his legend just grows and grows and grows. And obviously in the city, you know, people are all talking about Sattar Khan and, and Baskerville, like everyone, it falls into Sattar Khan's orbit. Like it's hard to avoid the, the magnetism of this like larger than life uh, character who people just assumed was bulletproof. Um, he would literally just like, he, he, he would do this thing where he would charge in and out of battles at different locations. And afterwards, like the army would be like, yeah, Sattar Khan was fighting with us. No, he wasn't, he was fighting with us. Well, he was fighting with us. And people were like, oh my God, he's everywhere. <laughs> you know? Um, and it was a big, I mean, his legend like spread beyond Iran. I mean, uh, the New York Times sent a reporter to Tabriz to write these sort of glowing, fawning profiles of him, but they were always sort of dumbfounded by this illiterate peasant that they would confront. Uh, the New York Times wrote this art article about him in which it says, the man doesn't even own a rug. <laughs> like what? It, what, what kind a of a, what a line though too. Like, like <laughs> what kind of a person doesn't own a rug? Like he doesn't, you know. Um, but he was this godlike character. And 
there's this thing that happens in, you know, the, by, by the time we're talking about now, January of 1909. So Baskerville had been there for a good year or so, and as far as every, everyone knows, he's been keeping his head down, and he's been tasked to teach this course on the, the revolution, uh, and he's spending a lot of time in the consulate library. There's an American consulate in Tabriz, a small one, but they've got a, they've got a library there, and he's, he's, been in, he's in there every night, and he's pouring through the Encyclopedia Britannica, and the consul general, a man by the name of William Doty, uh, notices this, but he's, you know, it's like, okay, well, that, that can't be weird. I mean, he's a teacher, he's probably studying, and it takes a while, but he discovers that actually Sattar Khan had sent Baskerville to that library to do research on bomb-making techniques, which, yes, is something you can learn about in the Encyclopedia Britannica. Also something I learned. I was yes. like, what? And so Doty, the American consul general, freaks out. As you said, the American government had declared neutrality in this conflict, not because they had a vested interest. Honestly, I don't think anybody in the State Department could have found Persia on a map in 1909. Um, but because, as a, a State Department memo makes absolutely clear, there has never been any such thing as a successful democracy in a Muslim-majority country. Quote-unquote, Islam seems to imply autocracy. Therefore, this revolution is ridiculous. This is never going to succeed. And because it's never going to succeed, we cannot support it. And this was a shock to the revolutionaries because what they knew about America was two things, the missionaries, who were wonderful and who built schools and built you know, hospitals and like educated the population and gen genuinely sympathized with the revolution. I wanna be clear about that. The, the missionaries, Baskerville's fellow missionaries were absolutely clear-eyed about who the villain was in this contest. They wrote letters to the, the board uh, in New York stating very clearly, the Shah is a murderous tyrant the people are fighting for their most basic rights, but it's none of our business because that's not what we're here for. We can feed them if they're starving. We can heal their wounds, but we can't have anything to do with any quote-unquote temporal matters. And, you know, the idea that an American citizen, let alone a missionary, would be helping the revolutionaries was a disaster. So they read him the riot act, and Baskerville promised to behave. I won't do this anymore, I promise. Uh, turned out he was lying. Right, the next day almost. <laughs> so Baskerville, you wrote in the afterword, is somebody that you've known about your whole life and is somebody who is quite, where at least one time, I think his memory has sort of been scrubbed since 19, the 1970s. Yeah, right. But up until the 1970s, he was a national figure. And here in the United States, very few of us, I mean, I certainly didn't know anything about it, and um, he's not easily found. Um, tell me about like, what you thought you knew about Baskerville before writing this book, and what you know about Baskerville now. How do those two things yeah. change? Well, I think, I think to answer that question, I, I need to sort of take you through the end of this story. At a certain point, you know, this is after months and months of the Shah's troops trying to take Tabriz by force and failing. At a certain point, they decide, all right, this isn't working. We're going to change tactics. If we can't take Tabriz by force, we'll just besiege it and starve the population to death. And that's what they do. They encircle the city. They cut off all food, all water, and they just sit back and let the population starve. And they do. Uh, what follows is this kind of very pivotal moment in Iranian history that every school child learns about uh, called the Siege of Tabriz. It's a horrific humanitarian disaster. Tens of thousands of men, women, and children die of starvation on the streets. And it's at this point in the sort of the, the winter of 1909 that something finally snaps in Baskerville. He just, he can't take it anymore. And he uh, goes to his classroom, uh, he stands before his students, and he says, I can no longer ignore the suffering of, on the streets. 
I can't pretend that it's not happening anymore. The best way that I know how to serve these people that I have come to love, this country that I have come to love, is to give up my teaching position and to abandon my missionary post and to go and join the revolution fully. And in this kind of moment, you know, made for Hollywood, uh, his students stand up and join him. And again, this is as bad as it is to have one of your teachers join the revolution. He took his students with him, which was, a ter I mean, it was just awful for the school. And it's terrible for the mission. I mean, they can't let it be known that, you know, one of their missionaries might end up taking up arms against the government where he's serving. No big deal. Like that's the, At the PTA meeting, that yeah, was pretty awkward, I probably. That's, that's kind of the end of the whole establishment. Um, and it's a disaster for uh, the American government. Um, and so the American consul general, the same William Doty who had read him the riot act a few months earlier for uh, using the, the Encyclopedia Britannica to, to give Sattar Khan bomb-making instructions, um, goes to him as kind of a one last attempt, like a last try to talk this kid out of this, you know, foolish endeavor that he has signed on to. And he sees Baskerville on the training grounds, because again, he, he, they're like learning how to shoot rifles, you know, in order to go fight in this war. And he pulls him aside and he says, this is not your fight. These are not your people. This is not your country. If you do not cease these revolutionary activities at once and get back on a ship and go back home, then we'll have no choice but to, and he uses the word treason. He actually says treason. And Baskerville very famously, in fact, this is probably like the most famous, uh, you know, sort of the thing that people know most about, you know, this very unknown life. Baskerville sweeps his eyes across the training grounds, people from all over the world, all fighting together for the, the freedom of Iran. And he says, the only difference between me and these people is the place of my birth. And that is not a very big difference. And then he pulls out his passport and he hands it over. And now the government can't do anything anymore. I mean, he's given up his American citizenship. So he joins the revolution. And just to fast forward, by April of 1909, that's it. There's no more food. There's no more water. It's really at this point now where you, we're all going to die in, you know, in the siege or we're going to die breaking the siege. It's one or the other. And so a decision is made on April 20th, 1909, to launch a full-scale attack against the, the siege. And Baskerville and his teenage students volunteered to be the tip of the spear. And... and the early morning hours, they try to break through the siege, break through one of the areas with the Maxim machine gun. And it doesn't last very long. He gets shot in the heart and he dies. But his death and the international embarrassment that it creates, again, not for the Shah, he couldn't care less, but for the Russians, mm -hmm. becomes too much. And so the Russians forced the Shah to declare a temporary ceasefire so that food and medical assistance can come in to the starving city. And the revolutionaries very cleverly use that temporary ceasefire to break through the siege, march on Tehran, and bring the Shah down from his throne. They send him into exile. They re-establish re the constitution. They rebuild the parliament. Um, they have brand new elections. And among the first acts of the new parliament is to declare this 24-year-old Christian missionary from Nebraska to be a national hero of Iran. They call him the American Lafayette. They actually use those, that phrase. Um, and they entomb him in this beautiful tomb in Tabriz. They create this gorgeous golden bust of him that they put in a, in a museum uh, in, in that city. There's a beautiful painting of him. That's a painting that's on the cover of the book. And for nearly a century, Baskerville 
is known as the American, the American who gave his life to free Iran. That's who I knew when I was a kid in Iran. There were schools named Howard Baskerville. There were streets named Howard Baskerville. And then the 79 revolution happened. And yeah, as you say, like for the most part, his memory has been pretty much wiped from the collective consciousness of most Iran. I'm, I'm pretty much the last, I think, generation of Iranians who probably knows who Howard Baskerville is. Because it was in your education. Yes, uh, yeah. it was a part of my education, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, this is, we're going to pause there and go to questions. There we go. Oh, there's the mics. Great. Um, if you have a question, just think about that for a second. I want to ask one last question for you while you're thinking about questions. Um, what, I mean, this is sort of too big a question and maybe it could be interesting, but what is the sort of lasting impact of that moment in Iranian history? Yeah. Well, so Iran again becomes a constitutional monarchy um, for a little while. And then the First World War happens and the devastation of that war and the economic and, and humanitarian crisis that it causes creates this you know, vacuum of power in Iran that is eventually in 1921 filled by a, one of those Cossack soldiers. In fact, the commander of the militia that shot and killed Baskerville, which is crazy but true, uh, <laughs> named Reza Khan, who with British backing uh, rolls his uh, troops into Tehran and declares a military coup in 1921. And then in 1924, declares himself the new Shah and establishes what is called the Pahlavi regime. That is the regime that was overthrown in 1979. And I guess, you know, on one hand, you could look at this, you know, and where Iran is today and think, oh, so I guess that was all for nothing then. You know, Baskerville died for nothing, his students died for nothing. That whole revolution was for nothing. And I can see why people would say that, but you have to understand that there wouldn't be the revolution that we're seeing today in Iran if it weren't for that first revolution. Mm -hmm. That revolution created the most robust political protest culture in the world. There have been four major revolutions in Iran in the span of a little more than 100 years. The one the Baskerville died in, the 1953 revolution, the 1979 revolution, and what is happening right now today, which can only be described as a fourth revolution. None of that, I don't think, would have happened mm -hmm. if it hadn't been for the events of 1906. Wow. Are there questions out there? Um, what would you like to know? We've got somebody with a roving mic, I think, here at the back and at the side there. I see one hand over here, and oh, there we go. Great. What are your hopes for the future of Iran with the fourth revolution that you were just describing? That's a great question. Thank you. Look, on the one hand, when I see Iranians on the streets dying for the exact same rights that Baskerville died for 115 years ago, and like we're still there, like we still don't have that, you know, the the demand to have a say in the rights that, and in the in the decisions that control your life, like that's not a big ask. That's literally the most basic of human rights. It's hard not to be depressed. It's hard not to think that a hundred years of struggle and fighting and revolution, and we're still not there. We still don't have it. On the other hand, I've been watching Iran for a very long time. I lived through a revolution, and I've never seen anything like this before. This is unlike anything that I've seen. Part of it is because it's a Gen Z movement, and part of it is because it's a feminist movement. And these women, these young people, are at this place now where they are not interested in reform, they're not interested in compromise. They're not interested in a little bit of give, which is what you know, most of the last 40 years of uprisings in Iran have been about. Just give us a little more. We want changes. They're not interested in change. They want to burn the thing to the ground and start over again. And they are not going to compromise. They're not going to take a single step back from that. If anything, this movement seems to be expanding by the day, bringing in different groups, even religious groups now, 
conservative groups are joining in this revolution. You're seeing women dressed head to toe in the chador, the sort of very traditional, pious Islamic dress for women, standing next to women in jeans and t-shirts and their without any covering on their heads at all, both of them holding hands, both of them saying, down with this government. There's no, there's no defeating that. There's no defeating that. Now, I will say that this government is ruthless and murderous, and they will kill to the, the last person on the street if they have to. So we are seeing two forces, neither of which are willing to give an inch. But that said, I feel hopeful. I think it's going to be a long road. I remind people that the revolution of 79 started in 77. It took mm. two years to get to, to 79. And it's going to be a bloody road. But at this point, it has been made perfectly clear that as large as this coalition is, as national as it is, it's everywhere. It's not just Tehran, it's everywhere. That they are speaking in a single voice. And that voice is that this regime is over and they will not accept anything else. And all we can do, I think, from afar is to continue to elevate their voices, to continue to pay attention. Honestly, when people ask me all this all the time, like, what can we do to help the people of Iran? Well, when you ask the people of Iran, what do you need? They say, pay attention. That's what we need. Pay attention. They live in a country in which the government is trying to tell them that nobody cares, nobody sees them, nobody hears them. Any minute now, they can just turn off the lights and kill everyone. And so you better go home before we do that. We have the ability to say, we hear you. We're paying attention. We're going to shine a light on this for as long as it takes. And that is far, far more powerful and valuable than you think it is. Wow. Thank you for that wonderful question. We have scratched the surface of this book today in this conversation. If you thought you got a lot of new information and a great story, you only got a tiny piece <laughs> of that story. Thank you so much for coming Thank here, you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. That was Reza Aslan, author of An American Martyr in Persia, in conversation with Andrew Proctor at the 2022 Portland Book Festival. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to Literary Arts marketing staff, Joti Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here. <laughs>